Okay, thanks everyone for coming. I think we'll make a start. So, um, hello and welcome to this IFG event on net zero and behaviour change, uh, put on in partnership with Imperial College London, the forum at Imperial College, who are a, uh, often a partner of ours and support a lot of our, our work and these kind of questions. Um, so, we're in the midst of an extraordinary energy crisis, which is of course having a huge impact on people's lives. Uh, and we're also at the beginning of this 30-year transition to net zero with big changes across the whole economy required and, again, going to affect everybody's lives. Um, so, so far, I think it's fair to say that the government, uh, or the last two governments, um, have been unwilling to talk very much about the role of, of behavioural change, either in its plans uh, for net zero or in response uh, to the energy crisis. So, in other countries, we've seen some quite big campaigns uh, recently around turning down thermostats, saving energy in homes and buildings, using more public transport. Uh, UK politicians have avoided really getting into that role of, of behaviour change uh, in this sort of climate and energy question, and we read about fears of appearing nannying um, of the public. Uh, so the Johnson government published its net zero strategy last year, just in advance of uh, the COP, but as I've been saying, it sort of more or less ignored the role of behaviour change and demand reduction entirely and sort of gave people the impression that they could sort of continue living exactly as we are and we'll just sort of swap out the fossil fuels for, for clean in energy. Um, in fact, it, uh, the government, when it published that net zero strategy, accidentally published a report on the role of behaviour change in tackling climate change, only to then remove that document from the government website saying that it had published it accidentally and none of the policies appeared in, in the strategy. Um, so, we're here today to talk about, you know, what role should uh, behaviour behavior change play in tackling the energy and climate crisis? What is it reasonable to expect people to do? What do they want to do? What are they, they up for? Uh, what's the right emphasis between individual agency, which we sometimes have heard quite a bit about, and actually the role and choices of governments in, in framing how those decisions are taken, uh, and what's the best way uh, to communicate with the public about this. And I'll just put a, a pin in this and say, obviously, climate and energy have been a really big topic at this conference. I think we're going to hear a lot about it in the Keir Starmer's speech at, from 2pm. Um, but I think this question of the, the public's role and, and sort of changes towards more sustainable lifestyles perhaps got lot less play. So that's what we're going to cover today. Um, Delighted to be joined by an excellent panel to cover all of that. So starting on my right, uh, we've got Kerry McCarthy, Shadow Minister for Climate Change. Uh, Kerry's been an MP for Bristol East since 2005 with a strong interest in environment and sustainability. Uh, we've then got Professor Lorraine uh, Whitmarsh, MBE. Um, she's in the Department of Psychology and Director of the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformations at Bath University. And she specialises in perceptions and behaviour in relation to climate change and was an expert lead on Climate Assembly UK, so it'd be really interesting to hear about that. Then got Laura Dupre, um, Assistant Professor of Economics at Imperial and does a lot of research on the effectiveness of climate change policies and impacts on people's behaviour. And last but not least, we've got Darren Jones. Darren's, of course, Chair of the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Select Committee, uh, MP for Bristol West and um, a big advocate of climate issues in the Commons. Um, so we're going to be tweeting uh, using the hashtag IFGLab22 uh, from our IFG events uh, account. So do uh, tweet interesting thoughts um, 
when you have them. Um, and I will start with Lorraine. So, Lorraine, can you talk to us about how much difference behaviour change could make in reaching net zero? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, well, it's clear now from numerous scientific uh, reports and assessments, including the latest IPCC assessment on climate change and the UK Committee uh, on Climate Change reports, that we can't reach net zero without very considerable behaviour change across society. The scale and speed of this behaviour change can't be overstated. In the UK, we need to get our average carbon footprint down from eight and a half tonnes of CO2 per person to about two and a half tonnes in seven years. Um, and that's if we're to stay within one and a half degrees of global warming. So we have a massive change to make in our lifestyles. Um, in terms of the specifics of what, what we need to change on the consumer behaviour side, it's things like reducing how much we drive and fly, cutting down uh, on red meat and dairy in our diets, and being less wasteful in general. And we need to adopt green technologies and products like electric vehicles, heat pumps, home insulation, and so on. But behaviour change isn't only about what we do as consumers, it's also about what we do as professionals, as citizens, parents, members of communities. This is about talking about climate change to our children, to our friends, supporting climate policies and making green choices at work. These are huge changes that we're talking about and the public need support to be able to make them. They want to do the right thing, but often the low carbon option is too expensive or it's not readily available. Or in some cases, people just don't know what the right choice is. This is why we do need government action to encourage and enable behaviour change, from information and education to infrastructure change, regulatory and economic measures as well. All of those things will be required to actually achieve the scale of behaviour change we're talking about. But as you say, Tom, there is a government reluctance so far to actually implement these things. It's assumed that it will be unpopular or it might reduce standards of living. But actually, the evidence suggests that those things are just not true. The public do support most of the, the, the net zeros needed um, that include behaviour change. Um, and most of those policies would actually improve health, health and well-being and deliver economic, social and environmental benefits. So we need government to acknowledge that technology alone will not be enough to reach our net zero targets. We need behaviour change across travel, diet, energy, consumption. And this can only be achieved by engaging and supporting the public to be part of the net zero transition. Thanks, Lorraine. That's really, really clear. And the point on public support, I think, is uh, critical. Just before I come to Kerry, um, can you just give us a sense of, within those models, and you know, the CCC has done work on this, how much behaviour change are we talking about um, in terms of meeting our net zero targets? I mean, you've mentioned some of the, the controversial areas there, meat and dairy, sort of flying. You know, you've got Boris Johnson saying you can fly guilt-free. I think, uh, you know, probably we could be more ambitious than that, but we're not talking about necessarily, you know, complete reductions in these things. Well, we are talking about getting to net zero, and so that really does mean actually very substantial change across all of these different sectors and in some of the sectors we just don't have technological alternatives and flying is actually a really good example where we just don't have zero carbon aeroplanes so we are going to have to radically reduce the amount that we fly until those technological options come online because we can't afford to delay these things even where there are sectors where there are some technological options like um, like land transport and we can adopt electric vehicles that's a very big part of uh, decarbonising land transport, we still will need to cut our demand for transport around about 20% and similar sorts of levels in, in diet and elsewhere. Okay. Um, Kerry, uh, how, what's, what's Labour's position on, the, on this question? 
Well, I think starting from the point is, is the ideological divide between Labour and the new administration has actually become very clear in the last week or so, which in some ways, you know, helps in terms of pushing political agendas, because whereas with Boris Johnson's administration, when you're sort of dealing with people that are sort of saying the right thing and sort of making promises, but then just not actually delivering on it and stalling in it and obfuscating, it can be quite difficult to challenge it because the answer comes back, well, we're doing this. So, but I think there's what's become very clear in the last few days, whether it's things like um, dropping the obesity, um, you know, the junk food, you're talking about reversing the, the sugar tax, you know, that's very much about anti-interventionist. There was some cabinet minister quoted the other day saying, well, to ban something sounds like a very socialist thing to me, which I'm pretty sure was Jacob Rees-Mogg, because he does like... Although Welsh Street against the sugar tax, we learnt this morning. Oh, OK. Well, Apparently. what, the sugar tax that's already in? Yeah, yes. no, well, well, the one they're cancelling, Welsh Street yes. said he's, he's not in favour of that, because it's, uh, it's worse for poorer people. OK, um, so I'll have to bear that in mind in what I say, but um, uh, obviously that's his brief. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're seeing that mindset where they don't feel that there's an interventionist role for government. And Labour, I would like to think, despite what you've just said, does feel that we have more of a role to play. And, you know, that is partly about actually using the levers of, of government. So it's like whether you regulate and ban and um, you look at things like the um, policy to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030, which was something Labour pushed for and the government had a, a longer um, phase-out date, but we, we got them to bring it forward. If you look at the impact of something like the 5p levy on plastic bags, which had a massive impact, you know, it was well over 80% reduction in use in the first years. So my view would be that that works, and yes, you can urge people to change their behaviour and bring their keep cups or urge them to switch to electric vehicles, but you do need those, well, you just get them a lot quicker if you have those government mechanisms. And that can be incentives as well. You know, you can tell people they can't do things anymore, but there's also the incentives. So you did have the plug-in grants for EVs, which um, I would say the government has phased out too quickly because while it's more affordable to, it's cheaper to run an EV, it's certainly not cheaper to buy one at the moment. There will be a second-hand market that develops eventually, but um, uh, it, it was premature. Um, but then, um, yeah, things like retrofitting. So Labour's pledge, you know, to spend six billion a year on retrofitting homes. That will help people um, that are in poor quality accommodation, um, whether that's social housing or private sector rented or even owner occupiers. That will help people who can't afford to take those moves themselves to make their homes energy efficient. So I think we have a massive role to play on that front. In terms of the more the things which are more about, you know, people's own behaviour change. Um, you know, again, it comes down to, you know, there's three trials. There's this individual behaviour, there's what government does, there's what the market does. And if you look at things like dietary change, for example, politicians are very nervous about going there. Um, the market has really responded. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what triggered it, but, you know, um, certainly I've been vegan for 30 years, and in the last five years it's suddenly become, you know, it's, it's not niche anymore. You know, it's entirely mainstream. And I don't know what sort of tipped... The, the balance, but it's clearly there, and every year Veganuary is bigger, and you know, not a great amount of vegan food available in this venue. And Darren and I have been on crisps, crisps and chocolate most of the <laughs> week, um, but it's a good excuse actually to just eat crisps and chocolate. But um, but you know, the, the, that the, the market has responded. So um, uh, I think though there is still that nervousness. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm very worried about the. Um, 
the lack of if you look at all the different elements of, of how we reach net zero we know what's happening on energy you know we're, we're very critical of what the government is now saying on energy with the you know new oil and gas exploration and fracking and so on but we do know what our, you know very clear pathway to try to get there the same is on transport you know we've seen the investment in as I said making sure that transition into EVs are affordable but also making sure that public transport is a very viable option for yeah. people um, but when it comes to land use and diets and that I think there's a bit of a, a well certainly in terms of agriculture there's a policy vacuum if the government is rowing back on yeah. the public money for public goods that we heard of, that w was rumours at the weekend but in terms of individual change there I um, yeah I think I think there's a there's a gap and it's um, I'm not sure whether either party would actually step into that gap yeah. to be honest yeah no that's a, that's a really clear message on, on sort of changing systems and not expecting individuals to do all of this themselves, being realistic about mm. what they can do. You, you kind of raised the, the question of who is able to make these changes from which they can benefit and which be, being part of this net zero transition. I think one of the things we're seeing, if you look at the electric vehicle transition, for instance, that's massively benefiting the wealthiest yeah. disproportionately. You know, it's massively concentrated in London and the southeast. We don't have extensive vehicle charging networks um, in other parts of the country, you can make a similar case around access to public transport. Yeah. So is that question of sort of making it a more inclusive transition, including these roles of behaviour, would that be yeah. kind of quite central? Yeah, well, actually, I mean, you know, you've only got to look at the conference slogan, which is a fairer, greener future, and obviously the, the fairness absolutely goes hand in hand. I think we need to dispel the idea that it's, you know, Ed Miliband said yesterday, it's actually cheaper to save the planet than it is to destroy it. And, you know, people still think renewable energy is the expensive option, although we do have to look, you know, there's companies that are still charging more for if you go on their green accounts than if you go on their mainstream accounts. So you have to look at things like decoupling gas from renewables in terms yeah. of pricing and so on. But um, So we need to get across to people that it needn't be more expensive. But yeah, things like um, if you look at the rollout of EV charging infrastructure, I tried to do some analysis. The government wouldn't tell me which local authorities hadn't bid for funding to put in EV charging points, but they would tell me under various headings which councils had so you're trying to sort of do that you know how many councils does that leave but basically there's, there's big gaps across the country so someone like Bristol where Darren and I represent has been pretty good I think we're the best outside London as an EV car owner it still feels to me like there's very few charging points I live in a block of flats can't charge there um, but once you get out to other areas um, there's all there's this assumption that everybody can charge at home um, which obviously doesn't work if you're trying to do a long journey and now anyone who's got an EV will find that if you get to a charging point there's somebody else there and probably somebody else queuing to, for, for them to leave but um, about 50% of people wouldn't be able to charge at home and that's sometimes you know it's because they live in flats but sometimes you know if you're in a terraced house that goes straight out onto the street yeah. um, and maybe there's no parking on the street you know um, but um, yeah or you know people garages aren't big enough for modern cars anymore all that sort of thing and, and we do have to have the public charging infrastructure do that and that does need to be planned um, because obviously you know if you've got someone like BP Pulse that are putting charging points out they're going to go for where they think they're going to make a return it's an expensive thing to do and there's also like um, the cost of grid connection it can be really expensive in rural areas that isn't going to be a, there's not going to be a market response to that that's going to have to be yeah. the government involved yeah I'm really glad you made that point Darren let me bring you in your committee's done some really good 
work sort of tracking net zero progress across a range of areas, and I think you've looked at behaviour change as a, as a part of that. So what do you see as the kind of opportunity here in the correct balance between the role of government and the role of individuals? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm just conscious I've had the third text message from the Parliamentary Labour Party office saying that we have to be in a certain occasion by 1.15. <laughs> um, uh, and so I'm going to keep my remarks relatively short so we can maybe try and get some and Q&A. I'll make sure we get questions to Darren and Kerry before, before they it's have It's one of those locations where it's like you have to go up, down, up, yeah, down, exactly. like round. Yeah, they're, they're, they're clearly a bit anxious yeah, exactly, about yeah. it. So anyway, so my, my, the irony of behavioural change uh, is that the uh, Conservatives both love it and hate it at the same time. Um, so uh, the former climate change deniers, who no longer deny climate change, so you know, that's, that's progress, now say, uh, oh, it's not really for the state to kind of tell people how to live their lives. Um, it's for them as consumers within a competitive market uh, to decide uh, whether they want to go to a heat pump or a hydrogen boiler or an EV or an e-scooter or whatever. Um, and so on the one hand, they recognise that behavioural change is a really important part of the net zero transition. We need consumers to change their consumption behaviours in order to hit net zero. But on the other side, they then refuse to publish their own analysis about how you achieve that behavioural change. And I think the root of that is that you can't wait for the market and consumer uh, buying um, to get there first. It's too slow because you have to have public infrastructure. We've talked about EVs already. If you're talking about in-home heating, I mean, we've done a huge problem. That's a massive headache. There's lots of stuff to do. You can't, as a consumer, it's very hard to do all of that work yourself at the moment. And really, really importantly, in terms of information, advice, and guidance on what to buy, how to buy it, in what order to buy it, how to finance and pay for that, how to ensure that you're protected as a consumer um, or a homeowner if things go wrong, there's a huge role for independent advice and support there, which needs to be at least co-funded by uh, government. It's the Energy Savings Trust in Scotland, I think, that provides independent services uh, of advice to consumers. We just don't have that in the UK. You can't go to a gov.uk website do an assessment of your own living situation, then be signposted to independent advice, information and guidance on what you need to do. And then if anyone's you know, tried to use a Green Homes grant or tried to get a heat pump, um, you know, it's really hard, certainly in Bristol, I'm trying to do it myself at home, to be able to, to buy these things. And then if you want to do the whole lot, it's actually still quite expensive. And so the behavioural change stuff is very, very difficult unless the government intervenes and importantly partners with business to provide policy certainty, public infrastructure where it's required, um, and consumer support and incentive in order to shift that behavioural change. And if the government are still committed to net zero, um, and uh, I mean, Kwasi Kwarteng will say he is, um, the new energy climate change minister in base will say he is, Jacob will say he is, but probably isn't, um, uh, they're going to have to lean in to some of these initiatives uh, in order to get moving basically pretty much uh, now. And so we shouldn't be nervous about talking about behavioural change because it's not about Jacob Rees-Mogg telling you what you can have for dinner. Um, it's about making sure that you have the advice, the support, um, and the frameworks in which to be able to make your consumer behavioural decisions, which at the moment are, are, are actually very difficult for many, many people. Yeah. I'll just leave it there. And just, just briefly, what do you think is the right tone for politicians to strike in talk, talking about this? We hear you know, about these concerns about nannying or, or hectoring is it about actually kind of gently encouraging? Is it about role modelling yourself and, and Kerry and the kind of, uh, you know, the sort of food choices you're making? What would you say is the, the right way for politicians to, to go about this? 
I don't think it's actually for the politicians. I think this is a pretty kind of um, gov.uk local authority led okay. kind of discussion uh, in helping the public. The polling shows huge amounts of support in the in the public to want to take action on climate change. The uh, energy crisis at the moment is making people really think about the efficiency of their homes, the price of gas, whether there are better ways to be able to reduce their cost. There's actually an opportunity within this kind of difficult energy discussion at the moment to really drive this forward, um, and I hope the government sees that opportunity. Okay. Uh, Law, let me bring you in, and then we'll, we'll come to a first round of questions. Um, what, what do you see as the kind of biggest, most important tools government has for initiating and sustaining this sort of change? Thank you. So I think government and policymakers have a wide range of instruments to encourage us to change our behavior and most importantly to sustain it. Now, there is no silver bullet. So I think instead of telling you, you know, whether it should be information campaign, nudging people, who actually put have implement more hands-on uh, practices and, and rules and, and ban uh, certain behavior, um, I just thought I'd flag some of the characteristics that have uh, appeared in my research as making a big difference. So the first thing is, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, it depends on the tri it depend on the source that we're trying to address and uh, the type of emission we want to control. So that will really direct the type of uh, policy we want to, pl to put in place, wh whether we want to address transport uh, and emission, reducing emission from transport, or whether we want to increase the energy efficiency of our home. Then the second question we have to ask ourselves when we are designing these policies are whether we want to tackle and address a fixed quantity, like it is the case in the emission trading system, where we agreed on a cap and then we decide on the allocation of uh, the pollution permits, or whether we are happy to just increase energy efficiency. The third aspect is the cost implication. Uh, we are all aware that the poorest are paying the biggest share of the cost, so we need to design policy that really take this into account, that consider subsidy to support the one the most affected by, by the intervention. And then the fourth element, which uh, plays a big role in my research, is, is what are the co-benefits? We're trying to reduce CO2 emissions, we're trying to reduce pollution in general. All these interventions have big co-benefits. These are effects, these are positive outcomes that were not typically targeted by the policy, but are really beneficial for people. And examples are, uh, for example, when we're encouraging people to reduce um, their car usage while they are more active. We have an obesity pandemic, so it's a win-win. Um, so if I had to summarize the three elements that really creates uh, a long-lasting impact on people is that the first one is that we can't have silo intervention. We really need to change our build environment, our infrastructure to make sure that people don't just cycle on a short cycling lane, but that they can go through uh, point A to B with really in a safe, uh, in a safe situation and, and having access to greener transport mode. <laughs> we need a win-win element. People will change if they also see a benefit for themselves, so it, if it improves their health or if it improves their, their budget at the end of the month. And then I think something that I've seen in practice is that we are lacking enforcement. We're doing, we writing all this great guidance, uh, we committed to net zero, but in practice, uh, policymaker or, or, or local authority, when they're making choices, very often the environment and the cost on the environment is still uh, neglected because it's hard to put a cost because it's, it's intangible, so they will focus on our affordable housing and so on. So we really need to put the environment at the forefront. 
So in summary, I think um, behavior change is essential. It's essential from all of us. It's essential from our leaders. And what I've seen in practice is that uh, those policies that we put in place, when people agree to change their behavior, the effectiveness of the, the policy put in place is actually greater. So managers that have to watch their CO2 emissions, when they're already uh, inclined to protect the environment, they achieve even better results than the ones that are really uh, forced to change. So we need to change and inform people and change behavior. And uh, on that note, I'd like to suggest that maybe we can have a virtuous circle once we all buy in and, and agree to change. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Um, let's take a quick round of questions for Darren and Kerry. I'll start here at the front with Ajay. Um, if we get a microphone. Um, Thank you, Lauren. Uh, if you can keep them relatively brief, I'll try and fit in. I'll get the lady in red over there and the gentleman here in black. Uh, if you keep them relatively brief, say who you are. We've Great. got about 10 minutes, I think, before we need to head off. Thank you. Uh, Ajay Alawalia, um, Dulwich and West Norwood CLP. Um, really um, sort of uh, was quite interested in the points around personal choice. But I think personal choice relies on correct information. Um, back in 2019, my parents were thinking about buying an electric vehicle, and they sought my advice. I said, what about these Toyota vehicles? They keep pitching this title of self-charging hybrid. I said, that's complete bull, um, to be blunt, and suggested the BMW i3. But the point is, is that um, when you talked about correct, I think correct information is the key thing here, and enforcement as to what uh, Laura mentioned as well. So how can we make sure that in trying to encourage people to make those choices, they are the correct choices, and where people are effectively, in a way, greenwashing that we hold them accountable and make sure people, as I say, make the right choice. Okay, really interesting. Thank you, I'm from Hayward and Middleton, which is a red wall seat. And we had an experience recently in our area when Andy Burnham went from hero to zero overnight with the clean air zone implementation, which had to be halted. Because while residents do want cleaner air, and don't want their children to be getting asthma, etc. Neither were they um, in favor of, in fact, they were very vocally against introducing the charges that would go alongside introducing the clean air zone. And there was absolute uproar. And in fact, um, the reputation of Mr. Burnham, who really was on a pedestal up until that point, still hasn't fully recovered. So I think it's about how we implement these changes because even when you have got um, people behind you in principle, when it comes to hitting their pockets, their businesses, it's really difficult to get them on board and we've had that experience. Thank you for that. Thank you, uh, Andy Hall from the Association of Zoos. Uh, Lorraine mentioned earlier that a big part of behavior change is education and engagement and getting people kind of inspired into uh, behavior change. Uh, what should Labour's position be on things like education, the curriculum, uh, but also government advice as well um, to, to inspire that change? Thank you for that. I was wondering if it was going to have a zoo-related direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Carrie, I'll start with you on this. Well, certainly on education, um, I think that a lot more needs to be done. There was a campaign for a nature GCSE or nature and climate change, um, and there's been quite a few debates about the depletion of um, you know, the, the way the curriculum, they sort of say, well, you learn about it a bit in geography and a bit 
bitten biology or, or whatever. And Nadia Whittam's been um, sort of, you know, her youngest Labour MP has been spearheading that campaign. I met with Dale Vince yesterday from Ecotricity, who's been doing a lot in schools, you know, getting eco-education packs into primary schools they're going to roll it out into secondary schools but that's all like you know one guy in his initiative that he's working with people i think andy burnham is involved in that so i yeah i think it needs to be mainstreamed across the curriculum that young people do learn they tend to learn about it as a discussion point so if you go into primary schools in particular they're all very keen to talk to you about say plastics and you know very anti-littering and things like that but it's you know in terms of embedding it in the curriculum absolutely does need to be the case and it needs to be the climate change and the nature conservation side of things as well um in terms of clean air zone i mean bristol's just introduced its clean air zone and there was so much work done to try to avoid the very consequences that you're talking about although in our poorest inner city wards which are just outside the zone actually car ownership is pretty low um, we've got a big issue with buses at the moment because we just can't get bus drivers so areas are becoming cut off not because they're not profitable routes but you can't get the drivers and it's a separate issue but obviously you've got to have the public um transport offer there i think we we've, we've basically done it as small as tightly as we can while meeting the legal requirement to get emissions down um, and there are certain um, exceptions for certain people and sort of certain phasing things and yeah particularly in terms of like disability access but um, it's, it's it's a real tough call and I'm not sure what the answer is because actually it's not just about doing the right thing it is a legal requirement now to to meet the clean air targets um, and then on, on cars, I actually absolutely agree with you. I mean, there's just so much greenwashing around, isn't there? And um, it's, I'm always saying to people, like, when you you have certain... Uh, what's the, the, the shampoo? Is it natural herbal essences or something like that? I'm always saying to people, look at the label. You know, it's like, it's absolutely full of chemicals as a herbal thing. But, but you, and you're, you're right on the, the car front. I suppose my concern is, you know, like, I've got a friend who's just buying an EV and... God, he, I mean, he's, he's a bit like that anyway, but he's done so much research into it and he's now an absolute expert on every different type of model. But a lot of people don't, you know, aren't going to do that. And, you know, with the, maybe with a car, when you're making a big choice, you would do that homework. But when you're talking about things like what to eat or what to buy in the, the shops, you know, whether something's like an eco-cleaning product or whatever, they just don't have that information. So I'm not sure what the answer is because I think, you know, more labelling and information is good, but there's cases for like labeling things with calories you know with provenance you know you know labor you know whether it's orangutan friendly or whatever so you you get to the stage where there'll be so much label that you know you'll have to have a packaging that big to to cover it but um i do think you're right and the other thing i would quickly say is if you look at the eat well plate that is something that the government always has pointed to um as we are giving people the advice they need on diets so that is our role we've got this eat well plate but, you know, I occasionally go into schools or hospitals, you see it pinned on the wall. But your average person doesn't have... They don't have reference to that when they make their choices about what to buy. And um, so, you know, it's it just gets the government off the hook. But So I'm, I'm, I'm not that keen on... Inf you know, information is good, but I actually don't think information gets to the people that you really need it to get to. And I think the, the evidence on food labelling supports that as well, because it's sort of requiring Even a lot that, of yeah. people to be standing there in a supermarket reading sort of yeah, very yeah, detailed well, there. Yeah, there was an item on the Breakfast News Day about people and portion sizes, and they were get, asking people, what do you think a portion of a you know, big packet of crisps? What do you think a portion is? And, of course, everyone's going like this, and it's like about... 
you know, four crisps or something ridiculous, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to come straight to Darren and then back. Um, Darren, so pick up any of those, but in particular interested if you think government should get tougher on greenwashing. Uh, Yes. So well, first on greenwashing, the, the independent advice bit is relevant. You know, the kind of witch style, we're not trying to sell you something, we're just going to explain in a really plain English kind of way what the words mean and what the pros and cons are uh, and what the affordability kind of stuff is and then you can decide what you want to do. And government can commission that in this space. As I say, for example, the Energy Savings Trust, I think, used to do it in England some time ago, but after 2010 it was cancelled. We just need to go back to doing that. Um, the bit where I think we do need to be tougher is around... Um, uh, reporting and auditing so as we get more into companies thinking about their carbon emissions their supply chains how they can say how green their products or services are we do need to make sure that the way in which they collect data uh, assure that data report that data standardized across um, uh, uh, across companies which is a kind of financial reporting council thing that we were looking at on the select committee um, just briefly on the clean air zone this is this is the kind of chronology crunch issue you know you're going to need to get somewhere but you really need your public transport or sufficient advice or kind of incentives or grants or kind of exemptions to be in place before the actual stick comes in and I think um, uh, you know many of my constituents are also very concerned about the clean air zone in Bristol and they they feel a bit stuck about it and they're very cross about it even though they agree in the long run it's the right thing to do and we probably need to take this as a, as a period of learning because there's going to be lots of these examples where we really need the kind of technology roadmap or the, the kind of the, 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 the milestones in order to hit the long stop targets so that we don't create a lot of anger and lose the buy-in from the public that we have generally for net, net zero. Um, and lastly, just on curriculum, I agree entirely. Um, I uh, work with Nadia as well as Jim Knight and House of Lords and others to try to get this more formally embedded in the curriculum uh, and the government uh, took the view that it didn't need to be formally in it and could be left to teachers but I think actually we can go a bit further Brilliant, Darren and Kerry thanks so much for joining us um, uh, Right and we will, we will uh, carry on uh, and pick up on your comments um, So Lorraine, I, mean, I don't know if you want to pick up on any of what you've just heard in terms of how Darren and Kerry responded to that. And I was particularly interested in perhaps your take on Ajay's point around correct information and what yeah. the kind of best examples of that are. Yeah, I mean, I guess I definitely wanted to sort of pick up on this point about the relative role of information versus other measures, because it's absolutely important that we do give people accurate, uh, timely, relevant information, that it's framed in terms of some of the win-wins that... Um, you need to sorry, speak, to speak louder oh, for the sorry. people at the back, yeah. maybe more into the microphone. That it's, yeah, that it's, uh, that it's also framed in terms of kind of some of the win-wins, so it's positive, inspiring, as you say. But information by itself tends not to be very effective to change behaviour. So Kerry mentioned the Eat Well Plate. There's also the Five a Day campaign. We can actually cite lots of just information-only campaigns that were trying to get people to be healthier or greener or whatever, but had little to no impact on behaviour because there were no other wide, there were no wider measures, economic incentives or disincentives or regulations or standards or anything else to actually remove the barriers to behaviour change. So people might have become slightly more informed or even motivated to change their behaviour, but all of those barriers were still in place. So it was still more expensive, for example, to get an electric car. Um, so information by itself tends to be about 2 to 3% effective to change behaviour. So we need those wider uh, measures um, uh, that, that Laura mentioned earlier. 
Um, and I think engagement is also really important, and this is the point about kind of some of the policies like clean air zones. We do need to be bringing people with us on this because we're talking about very significant behaviour changes. Um, and so we need to be having an honest conversation with the public and not telling them technology alone is going to solve this. We need to say we all have to change our behaviour. We we're going to do this in a fair way. It does need to be fair, as was mentioned. Um, at explaining the rationale, but and also providing these alternatives for people um, that are timely and, and available for them. Brilliant. And Lord, do you want to come in on? Yes. Uh, I'd like to bounce back on your correct choice. The correct choice is actually very straightforward, is reduce. So we don't have to be informed about what's the best IV car available. We, what we should ask ourselves is, can we consume less? Can we drive less? Can we walk to somewhere? Can we use public transport? IV cars are mentioned all the time, but they pollute a lot. I would talk about co-benefit. They're actually polluting massively. They emit small particulate matters. So in terms of local pollutant, it's not a good thing. And also the question is where the energy is coming from. Is it coming from a renewable source or are we still polluting just somewhere else? So they are really not the answer to our problem. And if we want to reduce the problem of uh, over emission, we, we need to change our behavior massively. Uh, the other point that I wanted to make, you mentioned education. I think, you know, I don't have a representative sample at home, but I think the next generation is much more aware. And they, are, they will have to live with the consequences of our choice. So I think it's important to educate them, but the one who needs to be educated, it's us. It's, you know, our, our peers uh, to change behavior, because whatever we're doing now, we're going to leave them with the consequences of our behavior. Brilliant. Um, I think we had one more question in the middle somewhere here, and we'll take another one from there. Yeah, yeah. That gentleman who was waiting, and then the man in the jacket. And we'll take one at the back as well. So we'll take a round of three. Hi, guys. Uh, Charlie Mercer from the Coalition for Digital Economy. Um, so, unfortunately, MPs have left, but um, should um, the Labour Party embrace a frequent flyer levy um, as recommended by the UK Climate Committee? Yeah. Thank you. Um, where were you? You just there, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, Joel Silver from the National Trust, Climate Campaigns Manager. Um, <clears throat> delighted that this panel is here. Um, uh, I haven't heard any mentions of behaviour change other than maybe one or two mentioned in the speech at other events, so it's great that, th that there is actually a focus on this. We're doing a lot of work at the National Trust at the moment to work out with our civil society partners what is civil society's role in this and how does civil society help communicate the behaviour changes that are needed as trusted voices in local communities. So I was going to ask the MPs what they, how they, uh, in a Labour government, would engage with civil society to help um, uh, facilitate the communication process. But for this panel, I'm interested to know, are there other behaviour change campaigns that have been really successful implemented yeah. in the UK that we can learn from? Because it feels like we spend a lot of time talking about what hasn't worked with climate yeah. change, but we don't spend that much time looking at other sectors, other behaviour change campaigns, and what we can do better. Um, so, yeah, interesting thoughts on that. Great question. Thank you, Joel. And I'll take the one in the back left corner. Hi there. Uh, Will McDonald. I work in sustainability. Um, it follows on very nicely from the uh, previous question. I was actually going to ask about international examples. Um, clearly, France are doing some pretty interesting stuff uh, from a, quite a regulatory basis. Uh, but I wonder if the panel knew about kind of other countries that are tackling this. So, sort of what's France doing, just for the benefit of us who? I mean, you, you supermarkets can't stock food in plastic anymore. You know, I mean, there's some pretty basic stuff uh, they're doing. You know, they've been doing kind of car-free days for you know a decade now. You know, they're just quite long, but it's quite state-heavy, yeah. as you sort of expect. You know 
without resorting to stereotypes um, from France. Uh, so anyway, but I'm interested in you know, other examples of where, where's doing this in the world and how they're doing it. Great, thank you. Uh, Laura, I'll start with you on this. So the, the first question about fle frequent flyer levy, well, as an economist, I just think, you know, the polluter player, uh, payer should be implemented. And when it comes to something like transport, like flying, which, you know, is less affecting the poorest di directly, I think there is direct benefit of paying for our emissions. So, you know, that, that's how we internalize all this externality. So as soon as we can capture whatever we are producing and put a price on that, that will give us an incentive to think about our behavior and, and uh, twice. Um, behavior change campaign, that's not really my, my, my area, so maybe I'll leave it to Lorraine. Um, I think what is interesting in the plastic example, it's, it's an illustration of what government can do as banning just a behavior. Instead of discussing what should be the price, what should be the quantity, what, 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 let's just stop it. And we've done this for other greenhouse gases, um, of course, it's not possible to do it for CO2, but they can be some, they, they are opportunities of having behavior that can just be stopped. We've done it with smoking in, in public places. So, you know, let's be now ambitious. Yeah, and I want to agree about the frequent flyer levy. This is, this to me seems like a low hanging fruit, actually. If you look at the evidence, the public is in broad support for this. About two thirds, if not more, of the public would support a frequent flyer levy. And I think the reason for that is not just because it would actually be effective and people, because people know that flying is bad for the environment, but actually because they can see that it's fair. It is, it is because of the polluter pays principle is very explicit in there. And because actually, if you look at who's flying, it is the wealthiest that are doing the most flying. So it really gets to, the, to that, that, that sort of core fairness thing, which is very important in terms of public acceptability of policies. So definitely Labour should go for it. Um, uh, yeah, and in terms of uh, what has worked well, yeah, we, we, I, I've actually been part of a House of Lords um, inquiry uh, on behaviour change for net zero. And so we're at, we've actually been compiling a, a huge body of evidence on what's worked and also what hasn't worked within the UK and internationally. That's going to come out in a couple of weeks. But I can definitely tell you that there are some great examples from city and devolved government levels already in this country. So there are lots of local authorities starting to do things like workplace levies, um, uh, yeah, clean air zones we've already mentioned. One of the most effective things you can do to reduce car use is congestion charging. And uh, in the capital, that's reduced car use by about 33%. Just explain um, how the workplace levies work. Sorry. Oh, uh, right. So I think it's in Nottingham. They have um, got workplaces to... Uh, I, I don't know all the details, but basically... They, have, um, they charge if you have a car park. If you're an employer and you have a car park, you have to pay lots of money. So then they pass that on. So then that incentivizes um, uh, employers to either re reduce the amount of parking or charge for it um, yeah. in some way. Uh, so that, and that has, that has started to work. And, but it does have to be in combination with kind of providing those alternatives like public transport. So, um, so there are already good things. And at devolved level as well, Wales and Scotland are doing good things. So Darren already mentioned the Home Energy Advice Service in Scotland. We don't have anything like that in the uh, UK level. Wales has, um, has got a moratorium on road building. They're also encouraging people to work from home part of the week. So they're really doing quite a lot on transport as well. Um, and in other countries, yeah, you mentioned France, and you can look at um, other European countries. The Netherlands, for example, one in three trips 
is done by bike, and that is because they have had decades of investment in um, public transport and active travel um, infrastructure, which we have not had in this country. So we, we actually know a lot about how to get people to change their behaviour, but, yeah, we haven't yet done very much. And I just wanted to pick up on Joel's point about trusted voices. Uh, I was interested that Darren sort of said this is not for, for politicians, actually. This is, uh, you know, local authority leaders, potentially sort of trusted other figures. Do you agree with that from the sort of evidence you've looked at? Who do you think needs to be fronting up these messages? It, it is the case that politicians are some of the least trusted in society. Nevertheless, <laughs> if you ask the public, uh, you know, who is responsible for tackling climate change, they will say government should be you know, like leading, showing leadership. That is very clear. You mentioned Climate Assembly UK earlier. That was one of the headline messages from that, but also from lots of other uh, work that, that the public do not see the government at the moment taking climate change seriously. They do not see that leadership, and therefore they feel... I guess this isn't very serious, or I guess I don't have a role to play. So they really need to be seeing that, having that message. But then when it comes to actually very specific decisions, then probably the more trusted people are going to be friends and family, like what, what sort of EV am I going to buy and some of these independent advice services and things. Yeah. Yeah. Law, I wanted to bring up something which hasn't been raised yet, which is tax. Um, you know, a lot of the time we're talking about, you know, things you can instruct people to do, sort of information, etc. But, you know, one of the most effective ways we have of communicating the kind of cost of things is by putting that into the price. And I wondered what you thought about that. I mean, do you think this level of behaviour change is going to be realisable without actually sort of changing the way that we, we tax and price things? Well, I think, I think to really flag the implication of your choices <coughs> and behaviour, it's the, the ultimate way is to put a price on it and just to say, you know, your action causing this impact on others, so we're now going to, you're going to have to pay for it. Now, the problem of taxes is, um, it's, it is a tool uh, among others, but the first one is when we put a tax on a good, we don't really know exactly how it's going to change pe people's behaviour. If you take the example of smoking, the government uses that because the demand for cigarettes is quite inelastic and people just pay the extra amount of money and it's typically the poorest that, that end up paying a large share of that. And then we don't really, we don't really know where we're going with the tax. What government has chosen to do with businesses is this emission trading system. You probably all heard of this permit, the market for permits. And what is interesting is that we say, we want to achieve that level of emission, so that the cap, and now the permits are going to be allocated, um, they're going to be an allocation rule. And from an economic perspective, it's relatively efficient in the sense that uh, factories that can reduce their emission at a low cost would rather do that and sell their permits, and so it minimizes the cost. And for, let's say, all the factories that don't have this ability to reduce as much their emission, the maximum price they will pay is the price of the permit. So from an economic perspective, we're really minimizing the cost of this reduction, and we incentivize businesses to increase their efficiency. So I think we need to think carefully about the taxes typically affect the, the poorest uh, directly, and we need to think of a slightly more complex mechanism with subsidy and, and making sure... It's nice to put a tax on something, it raises your awareness, but then if we, really, if we are aware of who's going to be... Uh, Paying, uh, paying for it and who's going to be the most affected, then we could redistribute that tax to support people in a different way. So subsidy to buy the right car or this kind of thing. That's interesting. And, and if you look actually other countries in the world, I noticed New Zealand uh, put out its net zero strategy 
recently, and they had at the centre of that this big retail policy around uh, EV rebates targeted at low-income families. So it's a kind of it's a behaviour change thing, but actually it's specifically a fairness and a and I think in, again in the states you've seen some of that around um, electric bikes as well. Whereas I, I think here we're sort of you know we, we talked about it earlier. I'll take some more questions. Yeah, uh, let's have uh, the lady here and and the gentleman behind you, and we'll take you as well. Thank you. My name is Nikki Adeleke. I'm a councillor in the London Borough of Enfield, and in that capacity, I'm also chair of the Environment Forum. Now, I just wanted to pick up on something which was said that people generally support um, measures for environmental change. And I think we need to take it with a pinch of salt when people say that, because people are always very supportive about things to improve the environment until they actually have to make the change in their lives themselves. And also, the other thing is that being environmentally friendly can be very expensive. Like, it's often a lot cheaper to fly or drive somewhere than it is to get a train or public transport or other means. And We've noticed that because in our borough, we, you know, the environment was at the forefront of our manifesto, and we have seen pushback from residents when it comes to, you know, school streets or low-traffic neighbourhoods or you know, cycle lanes and all those kinds of things. And what we tend to find is that people feel as if they're being beaten with a stick in order to make those changes. So they're making the changes because, you know, they're not walking to the local shop because, you know, they're going to get a bit. Uh, few more steps in they're doing it because you know their five minute car ride is now a 15 minute car ride and they can't be bothered to drive the extra 10 minutes so when we're looking at like policy implementation and you know comms and spin how can we you know portray it so that we're taking people along with us so that they actually can see the benefits so you know they can see the carrot end rather than the stick end yeah and can i just follow up on that so how, how, what proportion of your residents are kind of feeling angry about those policies and what proportion do you think are kind of uh, is that the majority or is that a kind of vocal but sort of smaller smaller group, would you say? I wouldn't say. I think a lot of people are in favour of them. I mean, if you live on the street which was being used as a rat run and now, you know, it's a school street or, you know, there's um, low traffic, then you're going then you're then they're very happy about it. But you do get a lot of people who are very, very vocally angry and upset about it and say, that you know, the traffic is just being pushed onto main roads and, you know, you end up getting stuck behind yeah. a bus and then, you know, you can see the fumes coming over them and all that kind of stuff. So... The people who are unhappy about it are very vocal and they made it known during the locals. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that. It's a really good point. Uh, Pete Chalkley from the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. Um, a somewhat um, uh, related question, I guess, is um, having seen civil servants shud shudder at the uh, mention of behaviour change, should we be calling it behaviour change? Mm -hmm. And actually, does that imply a sort of top-down approach uh, whereas in some circumstances, at least, there is um, pretty decent support for the outcomes um, if, you know, not the, uh, the, the, the means of getting to, uh, to getting to those ends. Thank you, Pete. I absolutely grappled with that in coming up with this panel. Um, do you have an alternative suggestion? <laughs> um, um, not really, I guess. I guess, but if, if we start from the point of view that, you know, when you look at some of the polling around this kind of stuff, that there are... Um, uh, majority level support for the changes um, that we're talking about here. Um, it's more about facilitation, and I don't think that's a great word, don't get me yeah. wrong, but I think uh, it feels as if um, giving a sense of helping people yeah. to make some of those changes that they, you know, tick the box and say that they might want to make um, themselves already is kind of um, actually a more accurate framing of what actually is trying to go on here. I think behaviour change is, is obviously a thing, um, but it's not quite what we're talking about here. Yeah, agree with that. And we'll take one more at the front here. 
Cheers, thank you. Uh, it's quite similar. I'm, I'm Rob, I'm from Lewisham. It's quite similar to Nikki's point. Um, we've introduced LTNs. It was a major issue at the local elections. Uh, the Lib Dems ran against it, came a few, few votes off winning a seat. So it was a really salient issue. And I think in France as well, we've seen the Jules movement after price increases, the most dirty forms. So how can we ensure that there's still popular support for these policies and also social justice behind them? Yeah, I mean, if it can make the Lib Dems win in Lewisham, then that's quite <laughs> concerning. <laughs> um, Lorraine, do you want to start off on this? I mean, I think this point around actually how do you introduce these policies, particularly at local level, is so yeah. key, isn't it? No, absolutely, and I know it has been challenging in lots of areas, but I think, I mean, I, th I think this is, just to reiterate, I think engagement is key, and, and because I do think while there are very vocal people, as you say, that stand out and kind of campaign, what the evidence suggests is it's usually the majority who are sort of silent but in favour of these sorts of things, and so we, we have to, so there's been some really interesting polling by Cycling UK, for example, around kind of the, the levels of support for some of these local transport policies, and it does tend to be a majority, and yet it's a very vocal minority who are saying they're against it. Um, so I do think we need to bring people with us. And I mean, so Sustrans have got a great toolkit for how to do that around, say, LTNs and other things like that and clean air zones. You know, so it's about actually actively going around streets and like, you know, uh, going to kind of the school drop off and speaking to parents about what might be their concerns and speaking to businesses. Are they worried about kind of um, the impact it's going to have on them? sharing the evidence that actually it's usually beneficial to business, for example, rather than detrimental, and all of these sorts of things, I think, are part of it. Um, I, there's, there's good work as well around sort of policy bundles, so showing actually that a particular me measure, let's say an LTN, is not in itself going to necessarily do everything, but in combination with investing in public transport and providing cycle lanes and other things to help people make uh, positive decisions, then actually, you know, this we can achieve what we want to in the local area, we can improve air quality, and it is about these win-wins again. It's about actually our children being able to get to school in a safe way and not having to breathe dirty air, and so it is about really emphasising that these are tangible benefits that people are going to experience. Um, and that, 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 that comes back to kind of maybe reframing and why it's, it's interesting that behaviour change does seem to be almost a dirty word in some circles. Um, I think because historically it's been assumed that, uh, yeah, it, politically it's difficult to, to make people uh, change. But I think if we're talking about encouraging and enabling people, giving people information, but also making it easier for them to do the right thing, then, you know, I think that that's what we need to be getting towards. I don't have a good way of reframing it. I know... In Bayes at the moment, they're talking about green choices, but that's not really that's not really very much better, I would say. So I think we need to do some do some work on what is the right way to talk about it. But yeah, some sort of like like the leveling up equivalent kind of thing. Like what's the <laughs> what's the behaviour change version of that? We'll get some we'll get some PR uh, yeah. communications people to do some sloganeering. Very interested in your answer there to Nick, Nick's question, um, just because it makes me think we could have it's the how the how these policies are introduced, isn't it? And you could almost have a toolkit for doing this at the local level. The other point that just occurred to me as you were, you were talking is, is often sort of doing it incrementally, you know, doing the bit around the school, building some support around that, getting parents to see that, and then sort of talking about, rather than just sort of diving straight in with an LTN. But, um, Law? I was just thinking for myself, you know, 20, 30 years ago, as it was said before, being vegan was, you know, th the weird person was vegan, whereas now it's the cool one. So hopefully those people who embrace those... Uh, this responsible behavior will, will, will lead and be the ambassador of the change and by being the cool one. I think um, in terms of how do we accept this change, uh, one thing that relates to my work is probably 
CO2 is a difficult one because CO2, when we emit it, we are not directly affected. It's, it, it's the sum of our effort that will make a difference. But if we can relate this to the co-benefit of making those changes, so removing car from the street, cleaner air, and so on, and more active transport, um, the co-benefit becomes huge, and these have direct effect on us. So I think that's what we should promote, is often not the community effort, which some people are not sensitive to, but it's really to say, you know, you will directly also benefit from that, reduce accident uh, in the streets and so on. And in my work on the emission, of, uh, the emission trading scheme evaluation, of course, businesses were very vocal. How can we put a price on carbon? It's going to affect our competitiveness. We're going to have carbon leakage. We had no carbon leakage. We had no effect of competitiveness. We had no effect on, on employment. So businesses were protected in Europe. And at the same time, the co-benefit, the magnitude of the co-benefit, if we take into account the improvement in terms of air quality, uh, it was by magnitude of about 10, 8 to 10 fold. So the benefits you know, are 10 times bigger than the costs. So if we are able to quantify those co-benefits, to really put a price and value on that, I think it will become clear to the public that yes, there is a cost to change, but the benefits are huge. Okay, um, I think that's all we've got time for. Um, thanks very much for coming. Um, thank you very much to my brilliant panel, um, uh, to Lorraine and Laura, and also to Darren and Kerry. Um, just a quick notice, so we've got one more Net Zero IFG event at Party Conference. That's at 6.30 this evening in Jury's Inn, and that's on the Net Zero election pitch. We will be hearing about uh, sort of successful campaigns in Australia, uh, in Germany, and how climate change is featured in those, and talking about how it might feature in the next election uh, in the UK. Um, but thanks again to Imperial, and thank you very much to the panel. <laughs>